This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to this evening's edition of Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. This evening I have the immense pleasure, and I really do mean that, of being joined by Helena, aka No Justice MTG, here on YouTube. Helena, how are we? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, thank you very much for the compliment. It's good to be here, as always. I really do mean it. I think you've been a brilliant addition to our regular roster. Long may it continue. Uh, coming up later tonight, we've got so much to discuss. McCarthyism is back with firings and resignations of those discussing the conflict in Israel-Palestine. Keir Starmer's visit to a South Wales mosque has come under scrutiny, and we feature the perspective of an Israeli man whose cousin is believed to be a hostage currently in Gaza. Stay tuned for all of that. Last night, Hamas released two hostages, two elderly Israeli women named Nurit Cooper and Yosheved Lifshitz. These were the moments just before the women were handed over to Red Cross workers, having spent 16 days in captivity. They were walked out of the dark by Hamas fighters. Hamas says the hostages were released on, quote, humanitarian grounds and for poor health reasons. Yosheved Lifshitz, the woman on the left of the screen, reportedly relies on an oxygen tank at night. The footage we're showing you was released by Hamas, and most of the sound has been edited out, presumably to conceal identifying information. But as the women were delivered to the Red Cross, this extraordinary moment occurred. It's okay, let's go. It's okay? Let's go. It's okay. You go with this one. Now, in that clip, Yosheva Lifshitz turns around and offers her hand to a former captor, saying Shalom, the Hebrew, for peace. Then she appears to say Shalom Salam, peace in both Hebrew and Arabic. In a chaotic press conference this morning, Lifshitz was asked why she made the gesture. In this video, her daughter translates for her, as does a simultaneous translator. The question is, why did you shake that Hamas activist hand when you uh, crossed? Because they treated us very nicely. My mom is saying that they were very delicate and gentle with them and took care of all their needs. They seemed really prepared for it. They had concealed it for a long time and they took care of all the needs that women need, shampoo, conditioner. And here Lifshitz describes the moment Hamas took her from the kibbutz near the border with Gaza. Okay, my mom is telling the horrific stories. She's saying that many, many people, a swarm of people came through the fence. The defense cost two and a half billion shekels and it didn't help even a little bit. My mom is saying that she was taken on the back of a motorbike with her body, uh, with her legs on one side and her head on another side, that she was taken through the plowed fields with a man in front on one side and a man behind her, and that while she was being taken, she was hit by uh, sticks by Shabab. Yeah, Shabab people. Until they reached the tunnels, 
There, there they walked for a few kilometers on the wet ground. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. Next, Lefschetz described what she encountered after the tunnels. My mom is telling about uh, coming through the tunnels. Uh, my mom is talking about coming there. When they arrive, they arrive into a large uh, hall in which about 25 hostages were gathered. And after two or three hours, those hostages, five of them, she among them, were taken into a separate room. My mom is saying that the they were very friendly towards them and that they took care of them, that they were given the medicine. Uh, they were given they were given medicine and they were uh, treated one of the men with them um, had it badly injured from for, uh, from a motorbike accident on the way and the paramedic was looking after his wounds he was given uh, uh, I have two microphones medicine and antibiotics uh, that the people were friendly, that they kept the place very clean, they were very concerned about them. Now, according to the Times of Israel, Lifshitz also said this about her captors. They told us they believe in the Quran and would not harm us, that they would give us the same conditions as they have in the tunnels. Lifshitz also gave some more details of her conditions in Hamas captivity. We were taken there and divided according to kibbutzim. There were people here, there were people there who took care of all the needs. We can say that to their credit. And they made sure that we will be clean and eat. They gave us pita bread and hard cheese and some uh, low-fat cream cheese and that was our and a cucumber that was our food for the entire day my mom is talking about the conditions and my mom is speaking about uh, the time there she's telling us about um, sharing food with the people that the people when she first arrived they told them that they are Muslims and they're not going to hurt them um, and that uh, they shared, they ate the same food that their, uh, um, the, uh, the Hamas was eating. Finally, Lifshitz also had some tough words for the IDF. My mom is very much hoping that all the people that were with her will come back and the story is not over till everybody comes back and we can start um, building again something. Oh, yeah. Would you like to say something? Yes, the last message. We were the scapegoats. They had warned us 
three weeks before. But the masses, they came to our roads and they burnt our fields. They sent balloons with fire and burnt our fields. And the IDF didn't take that seriously. All of a sudden, Saturday morning, everything was quiet. And then there was a very serious shelling on all the communities. And with that shelling, the masses exploded, exploded the huge fence that was built there. They opened the gates of the kibbutz and entered in masses. And that was very, very difficult and tough. I found this actually the most interesting excerpt of, of all the clips we've just seen because she is effectively blaming the IDF. She's not blaming the IDF for what's happened to her. Obviously, that's, that's because of Hamas. But what she's saying quite clearly there, and obviously with a great deal of moral authority because she's literally been taken hostage, is that there were signs this was going to happen. And that's politically relevant because the Egyptian security services claim that they told uh, Jerusalem, the Israeli government, that something was on the cards. The Israeli security services told Netanyahu repeatedly something was on the cards. This has been reported in a bunch of outlets, including the Wall Street Journal. And even the ambassador uh, to the UK, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Zamlot, said that it was widely understood that something was going to happen coming out of Gaza. When he said that, by the way, he was misrepresented by Sky as saying Israel deserves it. Israel had it coming when he said Israel knew this was coming. So I think for Netanyahu, if over the coming days and weeks we see more hostages released, saying similar things, I think really that is a huge blow, not just to his political credibility, because I think he's, he's probably gone, but to his legacy. Really, really extraordinary comments, because of course the first job of any government is, is to protect its citizens. And there quite clearly now has to be a, a conversation about why this happened and, and why was there such a failure to recognize what was coming. There's an, there's an old woman there who, who said, we, we knew something was coming. Now, it's important to note that the husband of the freed hostages uh, remain in Hamas captivity. So Lifshitz may be uh, choosing her words carefully to protect the lives of those still being held by Hamas. That seems quite a reasonable inference to make. But it's equally important to note that, according to Hamas, Israel didn't seem to want these hostages released. On Friday, Hamas released two American hostages, Judith Tai Ranan and her daughter, Natalie. They too were handed over to the Red Cross, following the same method as last night's handover. Hours after the release of the Americans, Hamas said they were also prepared to release Lifshitz and Cooper, quote, using the same procedures. That procedure involved negotiation with the Qatar, which has been brokering these releases, as well as the Red Cross. And 24 hours later, Hamas released this statement. We informed our Qatari brothers yesterday evening that we would be releasing Nurit Yitshak, that is the name of Nurit Cooper, and Yokoved Lifshitz for humanitarian reasons and without expecting anything in return. However, the Israeli occupation government refused to accept them. It's important to note the office of Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu described that claim as, quote, mendacious propaganda. 
Given that there are thought to be 200 hostages held in Gaza, it does, however, beg the question of whether Israel's bombardment of the Strip best serves the purpose of getting those held back alive. The Biden administration is reported to have urged Israel to hold off from a ground offensive to allow more time for hostages to be released. And in an interview with Sky News, senior Hamas leader Khaled Mashal said this. Also in Britain, there are families sitting, uh, waiting desperately for news about their, their loved ones and people around the world. What is your message to them? Can you say anything to make them feel better? I told you, I said these are civilians who are in Gaza, they are our guests. We are eager to release them. All what is required is prepare the right conditions to move them from where they are so that they are not killed by Israeli bombardment. Dominic, what Israel has thrown by way of bombs on Gaza is the equivalent of what was thrown on Afghanistan in 10 years. In 17 days, this is a crime. Stop this destruction. And the families in America, US, or everywhere, or Thailand, or other nationalities, they receive their loved ones, as you saw the two, two American ladies. Hamas has said that several hostages have been killed by Israeli air raids, though that number has yet to be confirmed by independent sources. In an interview with Germany's Bild newspaper, Israel's energy minister, Israel Katz, was asked whether Israel would negotiate for the release of more hostages. Katz said this in response. We will act in every way and with every actor to release the hostages, in every way. I saw humanitarian pressure as one way to release them, but we must act in any way that can lead to it. But it cannot hinder our actions, including the ground offensive, if we decide to do so, because that is what Hamas wants. What Hamas wants is for us to deal with the hostages and not have our military go in and eliminate their infrastructure. That's not going to happen. But we're doing everything we can to bring them home. Now, that certainly seems to be the strongest indication yet of Israel's strategic objective at the moment. This bombardment we've seen since... October 7th has killed nearly 6,000 Palestinians in Gaza. And the subtext there to what he's saying is that destroying Hamas and arguably creating a depopulated buffer zone in northern Gaza is more important than saving the lives of hostages. Take note of what he said. This is our priority, but... Let's take a look at an Israeli perspective on these hostages from someone who has a very personal connection to unfolding events. Udi Goran is an Israeli man whose cousin Tal Haimi was kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. Since Saturday two weeks ago, we really don't know what's going on with my cousin. We only know what happened in the morning of that Saturday when his kibbutz was attacked and he went out to confront the infiltrators into the kibbutz, the, the Hamas terrorists that came in and attacked the kibbutz. The attack began at about 6.30 in the morning. And around 8 or 8.30, that was the last time that he and his wife corresponded. And from that point on, we don't really know what happened. His body hasn't been recovered anywhere. He's not in any of the Israeli hospitals. And his phone was traced to the Gaza Strip. So that all leads us to believe that he was kidnapped. We had confirmation from the military that he is kidnapped or missing, either or. But we know pretty much for sure that he's there. Right now, 
we are no longer dealing with people trying to infiltrate Israel, and we are now on the offensive, which means that pretty much we call the shots. The entire Western world is on our side. The, uh, the leaders of the U.S., of the U.K., of France, of Holland, of Germany, Everybody came and expressed their explicit support to Israel, which means that right now we have the upper hand in the situation and we can navigate it the way we want. And I believe that as a democracy, we must follow our core values at all times, even during wartime, which means that civilian lives must come first. And Anyone that has anything to do with negotiations about hostages can tell you that the first few days are crucial in retrieving them alive. And as long as we keep bombing Gaza, as long as we refuse to call a ceasefire, our chances of bringing them back alive are diminishing. I think that the staggering amount of Gazan civilian deaths is unthinkable. It's a tragedy. And when I hear about Gazan civilians dying, to me, there's no difference in a mother mourning her child in Gaza and a mother mourning her child in Israel. It's the same pain and it's the same grief. And right now, the numbers are so high. We're at about or maybe over 5,000 people who died in Gaza. And I can't support it. I can't support it in any way. Not do I think it's moral, but more than that, I think it doesn't serve our interest. It doesn't serve my interest as an Israeli citizen. It doesn't serve the, the interest of Israel as a country. It doesn't serve our interest in the war because at first, I mean, there are so many reasons why I think it is wrong, aside from the moral issue. In the very practical sense, at the first couple of days, the entire world was out on our side when people realized the atrocious acts that Hamas committed in our kibbutzim, in our uh, villages. Right now, the world's public opinion is shifting because the death toll on the Gazan side is so high that we are now tr starting to lose our support. And I am certain that even though all the world leaders are definitely supporting us, they would not support us instead of supporting their own communities back home. And when the demonstrations for supporting Gaza and would turn into riots, they would definitely make a stand and would make Israel stop. Aside from that, I think that in the international community, making this war be remembered as a war when Israel slaughtered so many thousands of Gazans, instead of making it be remembered as a war that began by atrocious acts that only the Nazis committed on Jews, that is our loss. Because in the long term, this would not serve us. When we're trying to fight off Hamas, when we're trying to keep us safe, when we want to have the world's support for the future, and Biden said it very clearly when he was in Israel, remember the day after. Because there is a time, there will be a time, when the, this war will be over. And we will be held accountable for everything that happened.
what I'm expecting politicians, all of them, not just my own, not just the Israeli politicians, but I'm definitely expecting the world politicians that are expressing support are to ask these very difficult questions when they come to Israel and specifically ask, how are you going to get out of this? What's your end goal? What's your plan? And how are you going to save as many human lives as possible, not hurt more Gazan civilians and save your own civilians? And I would say something else, which is not being spoken about at all, in definitely not in the Israeli media, and I don't believe it's spoken much on the international media. And the fact that a ground incursion means that hundreds of Israeli soldiers would die. That's the exact explicit meaning of a ground incursion. And in a war, people tend to make the distinction between soldier lives and civilian lives. I don't. I think that every single life matters. And I don't think that my cousin, who's now is serving in the military and might be sent to Gaza, I don't think that his life is worth any less than mine or my cousin who's being held hostage or any Gazan that has just lost his life. That was Israeli Udi Goran, whose cousin is believed to have been kidnapped by Hamas, speaking to Navarra Media earlier today. I thought that was an extraordinary conversation because you have someone there who's got one cousin who's seemingly been kidnapped by Hamas, being held in, the, in Gaza, we hope, but better than being dead. That seems to be the most likely uh, thing. And then you have another cousin who's going to be serving in the IDF. I think just a remarkable conversation and such lucidity and wisdom on what he's saying. You know, he's not coming from a particularly radical political position, is he? He's not saying free Palestine, down with Israel, or anything like that. He's talking in the rational self-interest of Israel, minimizing the number of casualties of those held, minimizing the number of casualties of Israeli soldiers. And yet that kind of rhetoric, that kind of line of thinking is completely absent, both from the Israeli government which is why, by the way, there are so many people protesting against it, but also in Western coverage of what's presently going on. Uh, and I hope there's space for more people like that to make those kinds of arguments clearly because they've never been more important. Next story. On Sunday, Labour leader Keir Starmer visited the South Wales Islamic Centre. That visit gave rise to photos like this, the Labour leader thoughtfully pondering the views of the local Muslim community. And then there's this one of Starmer building bridges with members of a group he'd phenomenally pissed off over his views on the siege and bombardment of Gaza. Anyone with eyes could see the visit was a reputation-saving photo op after Starmer had made these comments just days earlier. I'm very clear Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself, um, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate? Cutting off power, cutting off water, Sakir? Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Um, obviously, everything should be done within international law. According to the former human rights lawyer Keir Starmer, Israel has the right to starve Palestinians of power, food and water. It's just self-defence. Now, following that visit to the Islamic Center, Starmer tried to rewrite history. He said this, I was grateful to hear from the Muslim community of the South Wales Islamic Centre. I repeated our calls for all hostages to be released, more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza, for the water and power to be switched back on, and a renewed focus on the two-state solution. 
I was questioned by members and I was deeply moved to hear their pain and horror at the suffering of civilians in Gaza. I made it clear it is not and has never been my view that Israel had the right to cut off water, food, fuel or medicines. International law must be followed. What happened next was surprising but also somewhat predictable because the centre where that visit took place has received a barrage of criticism. Some thought the visit was a disgrace and that those present had allowed themselves to be used to whitewash and launder Keir Starmer's reputation. Now, in response, the South Wales Islamic Centre has issued this statement on its Facebook page. Clarification from the South Wales Islamic Centre regarding Keir Starmer's visit. Isn't it strange, by the way, we're talking about Israel-Palestine, we're talking now about Islamic Centre in Cardiff or South Wales. Because apparently Keir Starmer needs to talk about uh, what Labour wants to people in South Wales. Clarification from the South Wales Islamic Centre regarding Keir Starmer's visit. Firstly, may Allah reward all of you for your gira. It's not said like that. I've mispronounced it. I can't speak Arabic. And support for our people in Palestine. Good. Get that out of the way. Secondly, it is best to face those whom we disagree with and show them the truth. What he mentioned recently is totally wrong and has offended us Muslims, which is totally unacceptable. Facing him, Keir Starmer, is better than avoiding him. We raised all our complaints and we criticised him for what he said. We told him that we reject this statement and that we do not agree with what he said and that he is completely wrong and what is happening to our people in Gaza contradicts the most basic rules of human rights. We asked him to put pressure on the government to allow humanitarian aid to enter the people of Gaza and stop these massacres which is happening, which are happening in Gaza. We would like to make it clear that the Islamic Centre in Cardiff is fully supportive of our brothers in Palestine. All of our kutbah revolved around this topic and we participated in the protests supporting them and donations were collected over the past two weeks for their benefit. We also held a charity event that was entirely for the benefit of Palestine. We pray for their long-deserved freedom, hashtag freedom for Palestine. Helena, it sounds like Starmer played these guys, doesn't it? I mean, it does certainly look that way. I was just going to comment on a couple of things from the original tweet of Keir Starmer that I found a little bit amusing. Please. The first of all was the original verbiage was that he was visiting, was grateful to hear from the people at the South Wales Islamic Centre, I reiterated my calls for the hostages to be released. And the verbiage of that makes it sound like the hostages are in the South Wales Islamic Centre. I'm like, they're in Gaza, case. Like, they just clear that up, just for starters. And then second of all, these comments on, well, I never, it was never my view that Israel had the right to withhold medicine, aid, food, water, electricity. Well, we've already seen from the clip that that's clearly not the case. Or at the very least, that was your the principle that you previously had, but people didn't like it, so you had another principle, which seems to be Keir Starmer's vision for governance. And then, of course, on the back of that, we still had no comments on things on that tweet specifically around like the forced transfer of people into the south of Gaza. The then proceeding to bomb the south of Gaza below the exclusion zone, which of course, other things which are clear uh, contraventions of international law, but that is a, a digression at the very least. Now, I'm old enough, as in uh, two weeks old enough, to remember when Keir Starmer's conference speech talked about how the Labour Party is no longer in the thrall of quote-unquote gesture politics. And if this brazen act of kind of corporate virtue signaling that it looks like this photo opportunity that they've had here. This is like the, the most clear cut 
example of gesture politics that I think I've ever seen from, from Keir Starmer. The only thing that comes close to it in terms of gesture politics was when they had this photo op that they did with the Holocaust Memorial, which was rightly condemned as being very, very out of touch, poor form, and in no way in keeping with the kind of the somber nature that you need in something as as deeply moving as the Holocaust Memorial to use it as a photo opportunity to be able to, again, virtue signal to one community that he's trying to win over by not actually materially changing any of kind of the policies in terms of how he's how we how they're responding to what's happening in Gaza with what they've done with this visit to the South Wales Islamic Centre. But in the same way, just openly making it look like there's no sincerity, there's no moral or ethical framework to the positions that are being taken. But they are there is a, a desire to triangulate between certain voter groups, certain communities, to try and best ensure their chances at winning an election rather than as I said before, having a consistent set of moral opinions or ethical positions with what's going on in these conflicts and with previous positions that he has taken. Yet another flip-flop to add to the continual parade, the, the cavalcade of Keir Starmer U-turns and flip-flops we've some become so accustomed to since he became leader of the Labour Party. I'm, and I'm not sure what you think about this continual desire to use props from other communities to try and virtue signal. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, there was that example, wasn't there, one time of him going to an evangelical church, I believe, in Greater London, which had some pretty bad views on LGBT people, I think. I can't remember what it was, maybe conversion therapy or or something like that. Just very much an open and shut. Labour does not agree with their position. And they were props, right? This This was black evangelical Christians who were props. They were political props. The same things happened here. And I, I, for me, Helena, I don't know how you deal with somebody who's just so comfortable with lying. And I'll be open about this. You know, I, I prefer Keir Starmer to be the next prime minister of this country than Rishi Sunak. I think he would be less bad. I think on foreign policy, we're more likely to be involved in an invasion of somewhere with Keir Starmer. But on the balance of probabilities, I, I still think they'd be better than the Tories. But he clearly is, is incredibly mendacious. Like, I think far more than Boris Johnson, actually. He's, he's far more adept at it, which is what really worries me. Um, and what this whole thing reminds me of, him saying, I never said this, there is literally a video of you saying this, is the time that he said on the Mars show on a Sunday morning, I think it was a Labour conference last year, um, I never said I support public ownership of utilities. And literally behind him are his pledges, him promising it. It's literally written in black and white behind you, and now, now you're lying about it on television, in real time. Shameless, shameless man. But then, you know, he's he's on course to have a very large governing majority. So what does that say about how media and politics work in this country? I don't think, by the way, it's a particularly big compliment to political journalists, put it that way, because I think they've enabled the right kind of liars, the right kind of lying to work. Um, and you can say lots of things about Jeremy, lots of things about Jeremy Corbyn. He certainly wasn't a liar, uh, but that isn't what matters. That is not what matters. Uh, we have a few more comments from you guys. The masculinist POV point of view, with a hundred South African rand, says one thing we have to acknowledge is the power of mainstream media. The current dominant position is a manifestation of years of biased media coverage. I completely agree. Masculinist POV. That's why we set up Navarra Media. We need to change media to change politics. Um, we need people-powered media, 
and you're not going to get that with the Times or even the BBC or the Telegraph or the Sun, which is why people should support Navarra Media, support truthful, independent journalism by going to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Uh, and if that was too much of a mouthful, it's in the description below. We just want one pound a month. One pound a month. That's all we're asking. One pound a month to build people-powered media. We almost got a million views yesterday here on YouTube. Imagine what we can do in a general election if we have two, three million views a day. Fox is going to kill me because I'm not meant to talk like that. I think we can do it. I think we can do it. Help us get there. Go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Like I say, that link is in the description. Next story. The Onion is a satirical media organization which mocks the powerful and our political elite. Sometimes they do a better job of highlighting abuses of power and shining a light on the plight of victims than so-called serious outlets. Michael Eisen certainly thought so. He was, until yesterday, editor-in-chief of the open-access journal eLife and a longtime critic of traditional academic journals. Eisen, who is also a geneticist at the University of California, Berkeley, tweeted this story from The Onion on October 13th. Dying Gazans criticized for not using last words to condemn Hamas. In response, Eisen, who is himself also Jewish, tweeted this. The Onion speaks with more courage, insight, and moral clarity than the leaders of every academic institution put together. I wish there were a The Onion University. I'd certainly want to attend. Now, that tweet led to a flurry of claims and complaints, including the assertion, bizarrely, I think, that Eisen was himself a supporter of Hamas. But he stood firm, and the following day, he tweeted this. Every sane person on earth is horrified and traumatized by what Hamas did and wants it to never happen again, all the more so as a Jew with Israeli family. But I'm also horrified by the collective punishment already being meted out on Gazans, and the worst is about to come. That didn't satisfy his critics, one of whom was Yanev Ehrlich, a prominent Israeli-American scientist. He tweeted this in response. Empty words. For seven days, you haven't tweeted a single time words of support for Israeli researchers, some of which lost kids and friends. And now you dare to give us military advice from your privileged position of safety. What a moral bankruptcy. After a frenetic to and fro, including a petition which supported ISIN, the man himself announced this yesterday. I have been informed that I'm being replaced as the editor-in-chief of eLife for retweeting a The Onion piece that calls out indifference to the lives of Palestinian civilians. Commenting on the whole saga, Josh Dubnow, a neurobiologist at Stony Brook University, said this. Nothing he said was repugnant or hateful. There shouldn't be consequences for minority views in academia. And as soon as we see that, the whole thing will come crashing down. Dubnow went on to question whether eLife would define acceptable positions on other controversial issues, such as abortion or the war in Ukraine. That is a brilliant question. I wonder how many journalists or academics or people in public life have been punished for sharing an article by The Onion on Ukraine. I suspect it's not many. Helena, there was a petition about all of this, supporting ISIN, and it stated the following. Censuring ISIN would create a chilling effect on freedom of expression in academia. Do you think that's right? 
what is worth caveating this whole thing with is that this is actually a textbook case of what the right would define as cancel culture. So it's not someone contravening a set of rules that they've signed up to. This is a large group of people on the internet as a in this kind of mob justice sense trying to and appealing to a certain body to try and get a certain person cancelled in this case, which is usually what you hear about when people on the right complain about cancel culture. It's this kind of mob justice that goes towards people who take unfavourable positions that this certain group of people doesn't agree with. Now, obviously, I am somebody who I think is a little less critical of cancel culture in some respects as a lot of the right are, but I do see that it does have these problems. Although what I will say is when the right have talked about these things, there has been a lot of people in the replies who have been the kind of people who would usually be entirely dismissive of cancel culture or repudiatory of cancel culture, backing what's happened here. So it shows that a lot of these people don't really have any kind of actual moral scruples when it comes to this. It is just taking sides. It is just a sense of team sports. Um, again, they did the same thing with the tube driver who's been suspended about saying free Palestine over the public address system in the tube. So it's never usually a pretty consistent position uh, on being anti-council culture from these types of people anyway. But um, to move on, on regards to what's happened here, this isn't the first time that this particular person has been vociferous in his critic criticisms of, of Israel specifically. So he was very forceful in his defense of Ilan Homar's comments about people like AIPAC, people like uh, the ADL, people who finance political campaigns in the United States to ensure that pro-Israel candidates go through into primaries. He even at one point tweeted out just the words, fuck Israel, with no context whatsoever. The thing that's crossed the line here is him tweeting out a satirical article from The, from the Onion that it's expressly trying to show sympathy with the victims of the bombing campaign and not indeed showing support for the actions of October the 7th, for example. Now, as when these things I think shouldn't be happening, these kinds of cancellations and these firings shouldn't be happening. But I think there are a lot of fine lines when it comes to what should or shouldn't be acceptable, uh, given the nature of what certain things are in terms prescribed and what aren't. So for example, what my mind was taken back to was the prevaricating around Gary Lineker and the comments that he made around Suella Braverman's language, where there were lots of calls again from the right to have him deplatformed from the BBC for what he'd said. And there was a big grey area because what actually had backed up his position at the BBC was that there were guidelines at the time around what what is and what isn't social media statements that they can and can't make in terms of their own employment with the BBC. And in, when you look at, for example, a non-profit in this case, I think that what this shows us is we do need to have more robust, more explicit lines of what is and is not acceptable to say on social media to ensure that people who do are end up on the wrong side of these kind of cancel culture debates, who do end up being removed from their positions, do end up getting their academic freedom potentially restricted, we can point to a set of rules that they may, may or may not have signed up to and say, well, yeah, there was nothing in my employment contract. There was nothing in my editorial contract said here that I couldn't make these kind of statements on social media. And in that case, as long as you've got your backing of your union and you're your employment official, then you'll be able to have some kind of remuneration, some kind of legal recourse there. But since in terms of when you look at the Gary Lineker case, everything was really ambiguous. It's really difficult to be able to take a consistent position on these things. I'm not sure what you think. Well, I think also, because this is an academic setting, it's what makes this so concerning. 
you know, I'll go back to the comment made by Josh Dubb now. Nothing he said was repugnant or hateful. Nothing he said was hateful. There shouldn't be consequences for minority views in academia. And as soon as we see that, the whole thing will come crashing down. You know, people used to think the world was flat. And you had people like Copernicus, Galileo, who disagreed. And you had mobs going after them because they dissented. And we make progress through dissent. People challenge, receive wisdom. Often, they're wrong. Uh, sometimes they're right. And when they're right, that's how we get progress. That's how things get better. That's how you get scientific innovations. Uh, that's how you make society better for, for, for the mass of the population. And so I, I really have to push on this point that we could be seeing, I think, a sea change in how academia sort of conducts itself. If all of a sudden you can't have a view on a, on a foreign policy dispute like this, when it doesn't even involve your own country, if your own country's at war, you know, for instance, during the Second World War, you couldn't go in the streets and say, I support Adolf Hitler in this country. I know nobody really says that, but, but you couldn't. There's lots of good history on this. People were being locked up to that kind of thing. In war, you understand that. It's explicable. But when your own society isn't involved in a conflict and you have a view on the deaths of, of, of up to 6,000 civilians. Now, bear in mind, according to the UN, around 9,500 civilians have died, Ukrainian civilians have died in the conflict in Ukraine, 9,500. Since October the 7th, almost 6,000 Gazan civilians have died. That really gives you a taste of what's going on here. Now, if academics in the United States can't call that out, the West has major problems. It has major, major problems. And as Dub now said, he said nothing hateful. You could say it was unprofessional. You might say that the, 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 the board of trustees or directors, they have a, a quiet word. But the idea that this is a firing offence, I find pretty remarkable. I find it pretty remarkable. Now, in response to that news, several of Eisen's colleagues resigned from eLife in solidarity. One was Lara Urban, and she wrote this on Twitter. It is with great sadness that I have to resign as eLife editor and early career advisor after uh, M. Bison, this is uh, the person we're talking about, Mr. Eisen, was fired as editor-in-chief for making use of his freedom of speech to stand up, once again, for the people who were silenced. Eisen has previously served as a scientific advisor for 23andMe and Impossible Foods. He's also currently an advisor for Arcadia Science, a for-profit startup incubator in Berkeley, California, that conducts evolutionary biology research. A spokesperson for Arcadia said Eisen will continue in his advisory role, saying they would not comment on his tweets as they don't pertain to his work with them. A bit of professionalism and intelligence there, rather than hysteria. Rather rare these days. But isn't it interesting? A private business is more capable of defending free speech than an open-source academic publisher. It certainly makes you think. After all, these are meant to be the very people who are the custodians of debate, inquiry, and questioning views. So are we seeing a new burst of McCarthyism in American intellectual life? Heidi Moore, a former journalist with The Guardian and Wall Street Journal, certainly thinks so. She wrote this thread on Twitter. Let's create a threat of companies and institutions that are currently engaged in McCarthyism and blacklisting of reporters, political staffers, authors, or anyone else. I'll drop examples with screenshots below. Principal people will unfollow these companies and cut ties. 
First, CAA, an agency in Los Angeles that wants to dominate representation of the entertainment industry. They demoted their head of film for saying the death of 5,000 people trapped in place was, as human rights groups agree, a genocide. Second, eLife, a publisher of biology journals that fired an editor for sharing a satirical post, reinforcing the value of all human life regardless of ethnicity. Third, and this was a shocking one for me, NPR and BBC America have cooperated in pulling ads around Nathan Thrall's compassionate book, Humanizing Palestinians. Fourth, the 92nd Street Y, which has disgraced its own culture of dissent in American letters as a whole by cancelling an event for a writer who expressed support of Palestinians being killed en masse right now. Fifth, John Fetterman, whose election progressives now widely attribute as a mistake, has openly supported the mass death of civilians in Palestine. His staffers wrote an open letter saying he was on the wrong side of history. They got a snotty email back from his aides. Another example not mentioned there is the story of Paddy Cosgrove, the CEO of Web Summit, who also recently had to resign for comments he made regarding the conflict. Again, this is extraordinary. And you might be thinking, why are they talking about people on Twitter? These are real-world consequences. People losing their jobs, having to resign, being, being demoted, losing work. Because they're saying that the lives of uh, civilians, soldiers, Palestinian, Israeli, are worth the same. Helena, what's your read on this stuff? And this is a really important question. Is it as bad as this in the UK? I specifically use the term myself, uh, neo-McCarthyism, when I read Sebastian Payne's article trying to essentially paint the entirety of the pro-Palestine movement as being pro-Hamas, right? So I think that there's this unified kind of trope to try and tie uh, support for Palestine into support for Hamas, into anti-Semitism, into the entire broad left perspective altogether. I think that's been something that we've seen ever since, I mean, ever since Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. I think that this desire to try and tie all these things together and to muddy the waters about the differences between these different opinions, that's been there for quite a while. And I think that Neil McCarthy is the best way of describing, because a lot of it does attack lots of people on the left specifically. But what I will point out in the United States, uh, people be receiving reprimands for being anti the actions of the state of Israel. This is not a new development. This has been going on for a very, very long time. Now, Mark Lamont Hill, who was a journalist of CNN, now works for Al Jazeera and Black News Channel. He was fired from his post at CNN for speaking in terms of pro-Palestinian rhetoric at the United Nations, it was specifically his use of the phrase um, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free at the United Nations, which he clarified his comments on. He clarified his comments on that and he was still removed from his post at CNN. Casey Halper was fired from The Hill for describing Israel as an apartheid state, an opinion shared with Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Beth Salem, loads of different human rights organizations have described Israel as such, yet she was removed from her position at the Hill for those comments that she'd made. Another high-profile case was Kenneth Roth, who potentially was going to have his fellowship uh, offer removed at Harvard University for his time critiquing the policies of the Israeli government at his previous time being the head of Human Rights Watch. That was since, in terms of uproar, in response to that, he had his fellowship actually given to him at the end of the day. But even so, these this censure, censure for be, people being anti-Israel, that's not a new development in the US. 
In terms of the UK, now, usually it's not been as much of a problem. We've actually, despite the fact that we don't have a First Amendment, we've actually been pretty good, usually in terms of people not actually being sacked from their academic positions in the UK when it comes to these kind of things, right? Two of the biggest high-profile, quote-unquote, cancellations in terms of academia have come in forms of Eric Kaufman and Kathleen Stock, and neither of those people were fired. There was uproar against them, but they didn't get fired. Both of them resigned voluntarily, and they went off to do other things where they were trying to explicitly spend them their time in terms of, I think Eric Kaufman was the Centre for Heterodox Studies, I think it's called, which was about free speech universities. And Kathleen Stock was, I think it was University of Texas. The other, I think that was the um, the free speech university over there. I forget the names. If I've got them incorrect, then uh, pull me up on that in the comments afterwards, I guess. So in the UK, we've usually not had as much of a problem. But I did, I did find something that's happened just recently, where the University College London Marxist Society has been suspended uh, for using the term intifada till victory, which just means uprising. Essentially, that's what, what intifada refers to. And they've had their entire um, they've had their entire society suspended in the UK. So I do think that given the nature of the conflict and how the blueprint for being able to discredit huge groups of people that we saw worked very well when it came to the what was described as by Jeremy Corbyn, the use as a political tool by over-embellishing the scale of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, not the scale of the of the level of the, what anti-Semitism were being engaged in, but the, the scale of the problem within the Labour Party. This blueprint has now been applied to loads of different people and has become a little bit more normalised now. And I think the continued normalisation of that has some pretty worrying consequences for us too. Yeah, I think that's so well said. You know, there was that gentleman who was working for TFL, train driver on Saturday, who said free Palestine over the tannoy. Again, you might think that's unprofessional. I mean, I, I think that's a legitimate position. I, I agree with him. But you might say, look, you, you shouldn't be saying political slogans on the tube because not everybody will agree with them, or some will, some won't. Fine, that's a separate point. He's been suspended. I, I don't think he should be fired. I, I find that utterly ridiculous. But the response to it was jaw-dropping. I saw somebody on Twitter, quite a high-profile account, I won't say their name, normally quite a pleasant person, saying it was genocidal rhetoric. He was calling for genocide by saying free Palestine. I mean, that really gets to the heart of this whole debate and this whole issue, doesn't it? If you think that one side should be sovereign, have a self-determining nation-state, that the Palestinian people have the right to a state, then you're being ergo-genocidal. Um, and I think, actually, it's interesting you mentioned UC, um, UCL. Helena, I remember the UCL, UCU branch, which is, of course, that academics, um, university and college lecturers union, um, or university lecturers and college lecturers union. They rejected the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And simply by rejecting a definition, they were called anti-Semitic. And that's something we know here at Navarra Media, because, of course, when this was all kicking off with the Labour Party, um, I think in 2018, um, they were saying, we'll accept the definition, but not the examples. Simply not accepting all the examples made you anti-Semitic. This is clearly ridiculous. It is clearly at odds with a society of debate, toleration, and, and, and respect, frankly. If somebody disagrees on a definition you hadn't heard until 10 minutes ago, that doesn't make them a racist. It's obscene. Um, and we know this really well at Navarra. I mean, there's so many stories. I I personally think that we've been blacklisted in many, many outlets because we think that Palestinians have the right to self-determination as a people. Shouldn't be controversial. Apparently it is. A final story. The news can be pretty depressing right now, but there's one group in Britain who've been given a reason to be cheerful and just in time for Christmas. I'm talking, of course, about bankers. 
the EU cap on bankers' bonuses is going to be lifted this week, pretty quickly, meaning a bonanza for city workers is on the cards. The cap was initially imposed by the EU in 2014, and that was following the 2008 financial crash. It was meant to stop banks from incentivizing risky behavior and limiting annual bonuses to just twice a banker's salary. Can you imagine? Only being able to take home an extra two years' salary with every bonus? Poor people! At Navarra Media, we don't even get bonuses. On the topic of risky behavior, scrapping the cap was a quasi Quateng's idea, remember him? He announced this exact proposal during his swift 38 days as Chancellor last year. And it's one of a few of Kuateng's disastrous economic policies that Hunt has decided to keep. Reversing the cap follows complaints from city executives. It's like Oliver Twist with a begging bowl. Can I have more, please, sir? Can I have more Ferraris, Lambos, private jets, watches? Can I have more... Uh, holidays to the Bahamas, more private apartments in Chelsea, more please, penthouse apartments in New York, Soho Village. Poor people. Well, the claim is that uh, this cap previously made Britain uncompetitive for recruiting talented workers in the finance sector. But they also claimed it was ineffective because banks just raised salaries to compensate for the loss of the cap. So, my question would be, why get rid of it? Either it makes a difference or it doesn't. Anyway, bankers may be celebrating the news, but almost no one else is. Paul Novak of the TUC said this, City financiers are already enjoying bumper bonuses. They don't need another helping hand from the Conservatives. At a time when millions up and down the country are struggling to make ends meet, this is an insult to working people. Meanwhile, Luke Hildyard of the High Pay Centre had this to say, the UK already has more millionaire bankers than the whole of the EU put together. What a stat. Yet our economy is stagnant and our public services are in crisis. Whether or not the bonus cap was an effective policy measure, we can't rely on the outsized incomes of a handful of super-rich bankers trickling down to a lift, slumping living standards for the wider population. Helena, this is really extraordinary. I mean, it would be extraordinary doing this at any point since 2014. But last year saw the biggest hit to living standards for the average British punter, I mean, some people say since the mid-1950s, because of course you had very high levels of inflation and wages simply didn't keep up. We've still got very high inflation. It's still, what, 5 6%. For many professions, they're still getting in real terms poorer. Why are the Tories doing this now? I'm actually going to be a dissenting voice on this one, Aaron. I actually think that as far as a policy is concerned, I don't actually have a huge amount of opposition to it. As you mentioned in your preamble there, the pay actually stays the same because there's just a change from how much regular pay they get to how much bonus pay they get in terms of how much pay in total is being given out to bankers in, overall, it's not really going to change that much. It's just going to make it a little bit more risk-reward, which does have implications. I will say that there are some implications to that. I'll go over that in a second. But what it does do is it makes our global market for financial financial. Um, experts, sorry, in banks, a little bit more competitive because the, the scope for higher earnings is still there for them to be able to get. And I can understand the rationale behind that. As for will it get them to engage in more risky behaviour, now that is the, there is a potential for that. The Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority, they did say, they did release a joint statement when this was announced, saying that they think that they wouldn't be too much 
risk involved with this, as I think one of the things that we're keeping from the European Union law that we've taken in as far as the banker's bonus gap is concerned, is that at least 50% of that bonus has to be in share remuneration. So that means that they still have a continual desire to see the bank to be able to succeed to make sure that their, the value of their bonus in shares doesn't go down later on. They have a vested interest in ensuring that they don't make hugely risky and volatile investments that might lead to the events of the 2008 financial crisis. So I can understand why they would do that from just kind of purely utilitarian terms, in terms of policy. I can get why they're doing that. The optics, though, the optics of this is absolutely terrible. As you say, we've got hugely falling living standards, inflation's out of control, regular people having to choose between heating or eating. So to announce this now, when you're already looking like a party that is completely out of touch with normal people, completely out of touch with the reality that people live in, it's, I, I, I cannot, I just do not get why, why they would continue plowing ahead with this. Now, make it a, a headline policy that would dominate the news cycle, that they're suddenly looking at trying to curry favour with bankers rather than with regular people in this country. Because actually, they don't really actually have a cost of living promise. Their promise, Richie Sunak's pledge, was about bringing inflation down, which doesn't actually change how much the cost of living is. Because if your pay isn't keeping up with inflation, you still had a real terms pay cut, you're still having a loss of living standards. Now, I will say that this only applies, this particular policy only applies to like a small number of um, material risk takers in the banks, but even so, that's still poor optics. And as you say, Paul Novak said, it's a slap in the face to everybody. But I, I, I personally, I care more about the material reality of the policy rather than whether or not we feel bad that people are getting paid more money. Because you've got to remember, right, if they do get paid more money, they do get taxed more. And whether or not they are getting paid more by banks or whether the banks are keeping more money for shareholder dividends, that doesn't change our cost of living. That doesn't change how much poor people in this country are having to deal with the full living standards. What we do need to talk about, though, is if they do get paid out more, if bankers are getting paid more, as Paul Novak rightly states, the financial sector is getting paid loads of money at the moment. They're making bumper profits. They're making huge bonuses. What we need to do is tax these people. We need to have a more progressive system of taxation so that when these people do get paid out lots of money in their very, very lucrative jobs, we can then redistribute that into the public sector to be able to ensure that we can ameliorate the poor effects of, of, of the financial downturn we're seeing at the moment. So if they do get paid more and we increase, say, taxes above um, £200,000, £150,000 or whatever it is on PAYE, which is how a lot of these people do get paid in at least for half of these bonuses, then we'll be able to see higher amount of remuneration for the Exchequer to be able to actually materially fix the cost of living crisis. But of course, the Conservative Party don't want to do that. Why would they want to tax the people who vote for them? So really and truly, the, the, the bad part about this is, is why we do not have redistribution from these people, not whether or how much they get paid or not, is what I'm more concerned about. Another point I'll just finish off on here too, is that if we're going to talk about banks running away with our money, uh, the people who are making their investments are, you know, I not they're not they're my best friends, I'm not a big fan of these people. But the real problem that we have at the moment is that in 2022, there was an extra £5 billion in profit from the banks because of the increase in interest rates. £5 billion, which took them up to record profits of £32 billion overall in 2022. Interest rates almost double that now. So they're looking at getting even more excess profits in the coming year, at the end of the next, this financial year, off the back of us being squeezed on our mortgages, being squeezed on whatever interest payments that we are paying in terms of loans 
for example. We're being squeezed on our mortgages and they're the ones making all the money. Why is there no windfall tax on the banks? This is what Unite the Union have been calling for. There's a windfall tax on the banks for the extra additional profits that they've made that we are paying in extra mortgage payments and extra loan payments. So whether or not they get paid more is relevant to me because it doesn't affect our cost of living. But taxation on higher earners, better taxation, windfall taxation on banks' profits, personally to me, is more important than whether or not banks get paid bonuses or not. That point you just made about um, interest rates and the, look, the, the margin between how this works is that when we hear about the base rate of interest, that's the rate of interest to which the central bank gives money to, pri- gives money to private banks. And then, of course, they lend out that money with a higher rate of interest. And they, like you say, that's their profit model. They make the difference in profits. Now, you might have a base rate of 4.5%. That's the rate of interest that, say, HSBC borrows from the central bank. HSBC then gives you a credit card of 16%. They're doing very well out of that. And like you say, Helena, there was this, it's still happening, they were in no way feeding through changes to interest rates to their consumer products. So for instance, um, if you were a depositor, savings rates weren't really going up as quickly as the interest rates on obligations and debts were going up. So where they could make money, they were taking it. And where they would have to give depositors more money because of rising interest rates, they weren't really keeping that in line. And like you say, there should be a windfall tax. Very straightforward, very sensible proposal uh, but of course, sensible proposals aren't really that fashionable when the conser- Conservative Party. Um, I would also say I actually agree with you here on the specifics. I have no problem with having a, a bonus if it's taxed at like 90%. Knock yourselves out, guys. I couldn't care less. Um, I would also add, however, that my worry is that lots of these banks, and now we're getting really technical, a lot of these banks are undercapitalized. And in a financial crisis, they'll suffer like they did in 2008. We have to bail them out again. So I, I would worry that they're undercapitalized. They're giving all their money away to their employees and you know, shareholders and whatnot as goodies. And in the bad times, in 5, 10, 20 years, we have to step back in again. The old silly old taxpayer, silly old Joe Bloggs, the, the mugs who pay their taxes. I would also finish with this. The reason why they're doing this, and it's picking up something you said a moment ago, Helena, is twofold, I think. The first is that Labour are pulling in huge amounts of money now in terms of donations. Huge amounts of money. Partly because they're not going to be very radical, right, from business. And the Tories now need to work out how we're going to get donations in the run-up to be effective uh, in a general election campaign. Because one of the comparative advantages they've always had is more money. That's gone. Okay, let's basically give a bribe to financial services people. Let's basically give them a bung. We will get rid of this cap. You will have these bonuses um, and you can fund our party. And if we're re-elected, we'll do even more uh, good things for you, give you more goodies. And isn't it funny? I'll finish on this. Isn't it funny how quickly this is coming in? If you want to give a tax cut to working people, if you want to renovate NHS hospitals, if you want to address the housing crisis, has to go through courts and quangos and NGOs and stakeholders and first consultation, second consultation, third consultation, oh, uh, Supreme Court, blah, 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 blah. Years, doesn't happen. Inertia, stasis. But this, get rid of the cap on bankers' bonuses, like that. One week. Done. Done. I think that tells you about how politics works and in whose interests it works for uh, when it comes to the Conservative Party. And it's not just the Tories, but I think on this, this is one of those things where Labour wouldn't do this, okay? I'm very happy to talk about the uni party and the Labour right being not that different from the Tories. L- Labour wouldn't do this. This is a clear 
I'm talking proverbially here, not literally, bribe, an electoral bribe, in order to curry favour with certain interests. And also, don't forget, Rishi Sunak came from Goldman Sachs. Uh, Sajid Javid came from uh, Deutsche Bank. If these guys want to go back into the financial service industry, what a lovely thing to have on your CV. Well, I helped you guys out. You're, you're half a million quid rich this year because of me. Maybe you can give me a nice position on the board of directors, or maybe I can go head up some uh, asset management arm you have somewhere. Just a thought. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. Helena, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks to all of you who tuned in tonight. The show is back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.